Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. That's right. Well, it's not Funky Box that we're God, God willing, it would be Funky Box that we would be so worried about these days. Uh, but of course, it is COVID nineteen. You still need your soul vaccination. Uh, we're going to be talking about COVID for the whole show today from different angles. In the second segment, you'll hear me discuss with Aaron Blake from the Washington Post some of the breakdowns in communication that continue to happen between government bureaucracy and the general public, with the press kind of playing an intermediary role. Towards the end, we're also going to talk about how fictional TV shows have dealt with COVID. But right now, we're so lucky to have with us Brianne Barker, for the I think sec- second time on the show, Associate Professor of Biology at Drew University and a co-host uh, of uh, This Week in Virology, which I listen to. I'm a Brianne Barker fanboy, so I'm very excited uh, to have her with us today uh, for a quick update uh, on the science of things. So, uh, Brianne, maybe before we get started here, I'm going to play uh, a cut from the acting commissioner of the FDA, Janet Woodcock, uh, on Tuesday of this week. Here's what she was saying. So I don't think prior um, you know, approaches reflect what's going on right now. I think it's hard to process what's actually happening right now, which is most people are going to get COVID. All right. And what we need to do is make sure the hospitals can still function, transportation, you know, other essential services are not disrupted while this happens. I think after that will be a good time to reassess uh, how we're approaching this uh, pandemic. You know, you, he, Brianne, you can almost hear a little bit of fuzziness right there in, in the locution of Janet Woodcock, the acting commissioner sure. of the FDA, because this is such a moving target and such a confusing situation. It really is hard to stick a pin in it and nail it to the wall in one place. Right, exactly. I think that I would have phrased um, those comments slightly differently. She said that everyone is going to get COVID. I would have phrased it that everyone is going to encounter the virus SARS-CoV-2. Um, and what we're hoping is that we can prevent many people from actually getting sick when encountering that virus in order to protect the healthcare system and things like that. Um, so hopefully, for example, for many of us, our vaccines are going to protect us from having many symptoms. So yeah, we will encounter the virus, but whether or not we call those sniffles getting covid is perhaps a semantic issue for someone else. It is a semantic issue, Brianne, but I think it's also a fascinating question. I think I feel like if I got 10, you and nine people with your same level of scientific attainment or clinicians, uh, also same, similar level of attainment, maybe Daniel Griffin himself, into a room and asked you, what's an infection and what's not? I'm not sure everybody would really agree. In other words, if you test 
positive on a PCR at a fairly high cycle threshold, and you've got the sniffles, which probably is your immune system reacting because you've been vaccinated, reacting to the presence of of SARS-CoV-2. Do you have a COVID, a case of COVID? Do you have an infection? Do you think there's scientific consensus about that? So for me, um, infection means that you have the virus um, has colonized you and is reproducing inside you. Mm. Um, the difficult part is that we're testing for uh, with PCR for nucleic acid. Mm-hmm. And that could be part of the virus reproducing. That could also be some leftover material um, that's left after your immune system has destroyed that reproducing virus. And so that's sort of part of where that distinction comes in. I would say that if we can detect the virus in you, you are infected whether or not you have symptoms or you were infected for a very brief period of time before your immune system got rid of that um, replicating virus. Right. And I I think one reason to to think about it that way, correct me if you disagree, is to think about people who, I mean, 3% of the population roughly is uh, immunocompromised or immunosuppressed. Uh, those people cannot afford to encounter me with some virus in my in my upper airways, even if I'm completely unsymptomatic, even if I'm vaccinated and boosted, which I am, of course, um, because, in fact, it's just a whole different equation for them. I, I assume that's one reason it's important to sort of say you don't have to be symptomatic to have an infection that could be dangerous. Right, Exactly. If you are vaccinated and boosted as you are and as I am, uh, you could still have the virus and you could still transmit it to someone, although the probability of that is far less than if you were um, going to be unvaccinated. So sometimes I like to think about the idea that, yes, vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals can spread the virus, um, which is similar to the fact that both Serena Williams and I can play tennis. both can happen, but one of, they, they don't look very similar. Um, and so you are protecting that immunocompromised person by being vaccinated and boosted, but you still want to do whatever you can to protect them. As long as we're doing analogies. Uh, I heard a good one the other day, uh, which I'll share with you. And have you, I, I could have heard it on Twiv for all I know. Maybe I did. Um, was it two of the ways where I heard the thing about the hurricane? Because it's a great analogy to explain Omicron. Uh, I'm not. I'm okay. not sure that I've heard about the hurricane. No. Okay, so so Omicron, as we keep hearing, is potentially anyway milder in its symptom presentation. Uh, so if that's the case, if people don't get as sick and more people are vaccinated, they don't get as sick. We don't get as sick. Why is Omicron such a worry? Why is it flooding the hospitals? So whoever I was listening to said, imagine that where you live got hit by a Category Five hurricane and and horrible devastation happened. And you thought that was the worst thing that ever happened. And then somebody said, no, there's something worse coming. It's a Category 3 hurricane. And you said, well, how could that be worse? And they said, because it's four times the size. It reaches from Maine to Florida. You know, it's just way, way bigger than the, the, than the more intense hurricane that hit you before. And, and I, that helps me understand why Omicron's a problem, right? It may not be as severe in its symptoms. But if, in fact, you know, it's, it's infectious like the way measles are infected, then a lot more people are going to get it and just raises the possibility of serious cases, right? Right, exactly. So I think that there is some debate about whether it actually can approach measles and transmissibility, and there's some debate about how many severe cases it can lead to. But in any case, no matter how you come down on those two, two debates, 
The issue here is that a uh, small percentage of a very large number of people getting infected is still a lot of people for the hospitals to deal with. The other thing that's kind of interesting these days, and I think maybe not a completely settled question, although I just listened to a very interesting 20 minutes between Andy Slavitt and Michael Mina, who's like the king of all testing, and he was just explaining the way in which Omicron you know, may not turn up in an antigen test as soon as it would turn up in a PCR test and, you know, how soon you could be uh, infectious without testing positive in an antigen test. The, the I guess this is sort of part of what you guys call the kinetics uh, of the disease, the way, in fact, the, the, the virus is getting in and what it's doing and how soon that's going to turn up in a test it is a little bit different from previous variants. Right. Well, so... The tests are testing for different things. With the PCR test, you're looking for um, that genetic material, which can be present even at very low levels of the virus and can be detected um, even when there's very low levels of the virus. And the rapid antigen test is testing for a virus that's really only able to be uh, detected in that case at a much higher viral load, um, only usually when you're at a viral load where you can transmit. Um, and so there has, there's some relationship between when you have any virus in you that can be detected and when you have enough to transmit and each different variant does have a different relationship. So it does look like the number of days that you are uh, able to transmit with Omicron is different than what we've seen before. Right. And this is more of a clinician question than a question for you, but I know you'll have stuff to say about it anyway. I mean, part of the problem here is time, right? PCRs take typically time to process. So if I'm going to rely on a PCR, which is much more highly sensitive, it's going to, it's not going to do false negatives. It's going to, it's probably going to catch uh, the virus if it, it, it's anywhere in me, but I'm going to have to wait longer to get it. Meanwhile, you know, if I've got it and it's serious, and let's say maybe I am an immunosuppressed person, I want to go maybe go on one of the new antivirals. I maybe want to go on monoclonal antibodies. And there's like a three to four day window where those things are effective. So you've got the best test takes so long to process that it might actually take you out of the equation for the the clinical help you need. Right. It might take you out of the equation. It also might give you um, a an issue where you don't know whether or not you need to be isolating yet. Yeah. Um, or it might give you a false sense of security because you might test negative on a Thursday and get results on a Sunday. But in the intervening couple of days, you might have actually been exposed and be positive. And you'll say, no, I just got a negative test. I must be negative. Um, forgetting about that time in between when you took the test and when you got the result. So um, I'm running out of time here. I did want to ask you this, because um, this comes up on TWIV, uh, this, on This Week in vir- Virology. I think Amy Rosenfeld was kind of talking about it in a recent episode. It, it must be frustrating for you folks, because this is a moving target, because the information picture changes, and also because everybody's really hungry for new scientific information, you kind of have these situations where, you know, maybe a study that isn't perfect gets, you know, gets uh, gets offered up as a preprint. Uh, you know, the news media gets a hold of it. Uh, we start over-reporting it. There's a way in which science, because of the urgency of the situation, hasn't had the time to proceed with its usual caution. And then everybody else, from the media to the federal bureaucracy, we can very easily make a mess out of that partial information. I- I'm just guess. I just would love to hear how, how that feels for you. It can feel a little bit frustrating to want to uh, 
um, talk to people and to know that the answer that you have is we don't know yet. We don't have enough time to answer that question yet. And you, you feel a little, um, you know, inadequate as you're making those answers to people uh, and they're going to other sources that may um, not fully understand something and getting an answer, whether that answer is entirely correct and given the proper caveats or not. So it can be frustrating, uh, but hopefully people are learning at least a little bit about the process of science uh, throughout this whole situation. And maybe in the future, they'll be a little better. Right. Okay. Uh, we have to stop there, but I do want to thank you for being on the show today, Brianna. And also just thank you and everybody else at uh, This Week in Virology for the work that you do. For me, it's been a tremendous education just to listen to the show. It's for If you've never heard the show before, it's not Science 101. It's like Science <laughs> 404 at a lot, a lot of times. So there's a lot of things that just fly over my head. But I've learned a lot from what you guys do, uh, and it's been tremendous. Uh, and I would also recommend this week, the first 20 minutes of In the Bubble with Andy Slavitt with Michael Mina. That... Um, will really kind of give you a pretty good sense of where we are with the, with the testing picture. But Brianne, thank you for taking time out of what I know is a busy schedule. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk with you. All right. Brianne Barker, Associate Professor of Biology at Drew University, co-host on This Week in Virology. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back with more. With a lot of people couldn't stand that, but you can. You'll be with me 24 hours a day. What a lucky man I am. Stay away from me. Wash your hands, but don't touch your face. How you like that? Wash your hands, don't touch your face. I saw you. 30 years together, we still having fun. Once we were two, now we are one. And get a burger. You know, when you're done, you're done. Memories of the past. Be kind to one another. Tell her you love her every day. Anger about something that... Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I'm hoping that I don't get cranky during this segment, but one of the things that has been a mounting source of frustration to me is kind of how bad the federal government has been 
through two presidential administrations now, uh, communicating about the pandemic, communicating the truth about the pandemic, making sure they correct mistakes that they've made and telling people things that will give them the information they need to take intelligent actions to protect themselves and and, and to guide them wisely through this just almost unprecedented uh, and horrible public event. Um, So one of the people charged with that right now is Rochelle Walensky, uh, the fairly new director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, And uh, Aaron Blake uh, is here with us. He's been with us before, senior political writer, writing for The Fix at The Washington Post. uh, And uh, his latest piece uh, is Rochelle Walensky is not good at this. So, Aaron, this in in that headline is that whole question of how you communicate, uh, how you deal with tough questions from sometimes hostile media and and how how you just tell people stuff they need to know. Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction to draw here. This is not necessarily about Rochelle Walensky's medical pedigree or how she's performing behind the scenes. But as we've seen during the course of this pandemic, we've we've seen people who generally operate behind the scenes thrust into a public role of either assuring the public or explaining things to the public and oftentimes dealing with um, messages that are that are um, arriving from certain corners of the media, often conspiratorial, and having to contend with those. I mean, we saw yesterday's hearing on, on Tuesday, Anthony Fauci dealing with some very tough questioning about the idea that there were conflicts of interest or um, that he wasn't sharing his personal financial information. This stuff is out there. And so to that extent, people who are charged with leading this public health effort, that and, and the piece was really about um, how Dr. Walensky's comments over the course of the last year or so have often fed into those uh, those efforts to to craft these conspiracy theories, or or at least seemed unaware of them in certain ways. And I think we saw that particularly um, with her comments over the past few days here. Right. I might want to circle back to Fauci in just a second here, but let's uh, give uh, an example of this. This is from your piece. Uh, Dr. Walensky is appearing on Fox News Sunday with Brett Bayer. You know going into this interview, if you're Dr. Walensky, that the questions are not going to be softballs. You are going to uh, get buzzed inside uh, with uh, the, the fastest fastball that Fox News can throw at you. So let's hear how one of those exchanges went. But I guess, do you know how many of the 836,000 deaths in the U.S. linked to COVID are from COVID or how many are with COVID, but they had other comorbidities? Do you have that breakdown? Um, Yes, of course. With Omicron, we're following that very carefully. Our death registry, of course, um, takes a few weeks to and uh, takes a few weeks to collect. Um, And of course, Omicron has just been with us for a few weeks, but those data will be forthcoming. So explain why that maybe was not the perfect way to answer that question. Yes. So since very early in the pandemic, there has been this undercurrent of uh, the idea that the death tolls have been inflated by the government. And this generally involves the idea that people who are dying of COVID are distinct from those who are dying with COVID. The idea, which was enunciated pretty early in the pandemic on Tucker Carlson's show and in other venues, is that maybe people are dying of other things but are being classified as COVID deaths because they just happen to have contracted the virus. Of course, that seems very unlikely uh, given that they would die so soon after contracting the virus 
There are certainly people who probably fit that description, but the idea that there's any significant number of them is a little bit far-fetched. And now we've seen that kind of shoved into the mainstream a little bit with with the idea that, um, especially her comment uh, on Friday and then on Sunday, that people with many comorbidities, especially vaccinated people, are accounting for a lot of the deaths. And so... I think it's it's a it's a matter of recognizing when you are being asked about something that is the basis for some of these kind of cons- conspiratorial theories about the death tolls. And I think what the exchange Sunday demonstrated was that either she didn't she wasn't aware of that or she understood the question to be something different. But certainly, even shortly after that exchange, we saw those who have argued for an inflated death toll or the with COVID versus of COVID. Uh, difference, um, arguing that essentially her comments confirmed what they had been long saying, when in fact that didn't seem to be her intent at all. Right. I mean, it would have been pretty easy for her um, to say something like, Brett, I mean, that whole that whole distinction has kind of been debunked. We we now know f- from the way that death rates, rates spike when COVID spikes uh, and, and that there's an overage of, of death rates. In other words, a higher than usual death rate. So these aren't people who are going to die anyway. These are people who are dying under the particular circumstances of the pandemic. Uh, you know, I mean, that person wasn't going to die of diabetes on that day. That's why the death rate spikes up over its normal level. Uh, you know, I don't think that's that hard an answer, but somehow or other just wasn't an arrow sitting there in her quiver. Yeah. And and I think the most telling comparison is that um, one of her predecessors in this effort, Deborah Burks, who was then one of uh, the Trump administration's top coronavirus advisors, very much dealt with this issue early on. She was asked about these theories about with COVID versus of COVID. At the time, one of her comments had also um, uh, fed this effort to some degree. She said that if someone dies with COVID, we are counting that as a COVID-19 death. That was used on on Tucker Carlson's show uh, by Fox News pundit Britt Hume. Um, she was asked about it and she basically said, look, uh, these are issues that may exacerbate, may be exacerbated by COVID, but COVID is certainly a contributor to the death. Um, and so the, she basically begged off the idea that there was any real distinction there. Yeah, no, she, she that, even went further. I think she said it was kind of the opposite of the truth, that the, if, if people were making the argument that these people were going to die anyway of their so-called comorbidities and they just happened to have COVID, that was incidental, th- that was the opposite of that. These people just happened to have these comorbidities. They died because they got COVID. Uh, I mean, she, she tried anyway, I think, to sort of say, well, they were essentially standing reality on its head. Right. And, and I mean, in, in her case, I think her comment fed the was a little bit more misconstrued even than what Dr. Walensky's comments were this weekend. Um, and she was at least given a chance to directly respond to people who were using it in a certain way. Um, but, you know, this was very early in the pandemic. This was back in April of 2020. So this stuff has been out there for a very long time. And I think that it, it, it speaks to the idea that there needs to be an awareness of how these conspiracies have driven vaccine hesitancy, have driven people who are not taking precautions, um, and and any health official needs to be uh, cognizant of, of those things that are out there. And certainly that's not necessarily what we've seen from Dr. Walensky, at least before the hearing on Tuesday. I mean, part of the problem here, I think, Aaron, is that, I mean, a lot of the people who are thrust into these roles are either politicians uh, uh, or they are scientists who didn't necessarily train their whole lives 
to talk to the media. And, and I think most of them are not very good at it. And I think and, or we could just throw in, the, you know, the titular head of Biden's COVID response team, Jeff Zients, who isn't either one of those things. He's not a medical guy, <laughs> uh, nor is he a trained spokesperson about anything. And they just make mistake after mistake. Zients has kind of been caught discouraging uh, uh, governors from from Im- implementing mask mandates. Uh, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary uh, in early December, sarcastically, sarcastically replied, do a question about testing with should we just send one to every American? <laughs> well, that, and that was supposed to be so. How ridiculous the question was. Then, Aaron, they did that. They did the thing that was such so ridiculous that that Saki, you know, was using it as as an example of how ludicrous the question was. I mean, I just don't think communication has been very good in the Biden administration overall, and I don't think it's just Walensky either. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. This, there is a these roles almost by definition involve people who aren't public messengers necessarily and are thrust into that role. Um, I, I think that Senator Mitt Romney um, stated it very well at the hearing yesterday. Uh, the idea that these public health officials are not politicians and they're suddenly being subject to lengthy hearings in which senators are throwing conspiratorial questions at them. You know, they're dealing with with uh, media outlets that are are uh, have cast the vaccines in a certain way. Uh, and so it's not just a matter of them making the right decisions behind the scenes, but but having, uh, you know, taking on the role of being a public messenger, which is a, an extremely difficult thing to do um, as somebody whose job is is mostly to write, but also talks about these things from time to time. You know, it, it you can get drawn into certain things that you maybe don't intend to, but you also need to be cognizant of how things are being interpreted and, and the, the, the backdrop of the issues you're talking about. And certainly, given the stakes of, of the coronavirus pandemic, that has been uh, a huge test for many health officials. And I think that Walensky is certainly not alone in that distinction. Right. You put in your piece, point out in your piece that Walensky has uh, apparently gotten some media training now. But you know, it does seem, first of all, we should acknowledge this is a horrible environment to try to operate in. And certainly Burks and Fauci started out in an environment where there was a sort of Damocles hanging over their heads all the time uh, in the form of the president who might at any juncture decide that they were going too far uh, in stating the severity of, of things and just, just can them. Uh, but I think another problem, and I think to this day, they almost don't seem to get this, is that we live in an environment where if you say something in, I don't know, March or April of, of 2021, um, you know, it, and then things change, or March and April of 2020, probably a better example, uh, and then things change, there's going to be a 39-second clip of you saying that that's up on YouTube and being circulated on social media for a really long time. And so, I mean, Fauci, for example, early in the pandemic, says something to the effect that asymptomatic transmission has never driven a pandemic. Right. Uh, and, and that clip is still being circulated among people who want to argue against asymptomatic transmission, which has turned out to be one of the defining characteristics of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, you know, and, and if you make a mistake like that, one thing you've got to do— or if you say something that turns out not to be true, you've really got to work to correct it, whether it's how you describe the effectiveness of vaccines or droplet versus airborne transmission. All these things change. And even a person conscientiously trying to keep up with all the changes has trouble doing it. I feel like because there isn't really one unified source of information that everybody can go to and trust. But I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. 
Yeah, and I think that you mentioned the Fauci example. Uh, Another one would be masks, which was very early in the pandemic where they basically said, including Fauci, that, you know, it it wasn't something that we needed to do. Uh, Fauci later acknowledged that part of the reason for that was that there was concern that potentially healthcare workers wouldn't be able to get masks because there simply weren't enough. Um, And then another example, which I think is worth pointing out, and I do mention in the piece, is uh, a clip that, like you said, has been resurfaced in recent days from Dr. Walensky back in August amid the rise of the Delta variant. She said that what the vaccines can't do anymore is prevent transmission. This has been put out there as proof that um, basically vaccine mandates are, are foolhardy because the vaccines don't do anything to stop the spread. Um, this is, I think this comment is kind of a case in point. There is a difference between saying the vaccines do nothing to prevent the spread and that they don't prevent the spread as well as they used to, which they certainly do not. Um, But when you're a health official, you need to delineate between the two because saying that they can't prevent transmission anymore is going to be used as it is right now to suggest that that vaccine mandates or that don't work or that vaccines don't work. And so I think that's another example of where your messaging needs to be tailored very carefully. And in a lot of cases, it it simply hasn't been so far. No. Um, All right. We're going to stop there. It's a terrific piece, as usual, by Aaron Blake, senior political reporter writing for The Fix at The Washington Post. Rochelle Walensky is not good at this. Thanks for doing this with us, Aaron. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about how the fictive world of television deals with the pandemic or doesn't. So before we uh, head into the final segment here, I got my usual thank yous to say thank you to Kat Pastor, our wonderful technical producer uh, and senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show. Lily Tyson is also the producer of this episode. So thanks to both of them. Uh, A guy we like to have on a lot because he thinks a lot the way that we do, which could maybe be a cause of concern for both of us, uh, is James (laughs) Ponowazic, chief television critic for The New York Times. And recently uh, he wrote a piece called Wondering When the Pandemic Will End? Question mark On TV, it already has. Before we get James into the flow, let's just sort of imagine that you're settling down on your sofa to watch the kind of reboot of Sex in the City. Uh, It's called In Just Like That. And, you know, you're a little worried about Omicron. You're, you know, maybe you just went to Walgreens and you couldn't get the antigen tests. You know, you're sitting there thinking, wow, we're still in kind of a mess. Well, here's how that very first episode, very first scene, this, here's how it began. Ooh. <laughs> Remember when we had to legally stand six feet apart from one another? Yeah, I miss it. <laughs> oh, excuse us. Hi. I cannot believe it. Oh, it's been forever. Do we hug or bump elbows, sign language, smoke signals? <laughs> Where are we these days? And, and where's the fourth musketeer? Where's Samantha? Oh, um, she's no longer with us. No, 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 she didn't die. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, no I'm so sorry, no. I just meant she's not with us. Oh. She's in London. Oh, thank God. After the horror show we've been through, I just assume anyone I haven't seen in a while has passed on or gave up and moved to Palm Beach. No, she moved to the UK for work. Smart. Sexy sirens in their 60s are still viable over there. Well, enjoy. Lizzie, are you coming? Hi. 
Remember when we couldn't air kiss hello or goodbye? Yes, I miss it. All right, so two danger signals right there. One of them is Samantha's not going to be in this, so, I mean, the most entertaining of the four uh, is off the table. And the other danger <laughs> signal is that everything about the pandemic is in the past tense. Uh, this We are being told, anyway, either as a matter of exposition or a matter of conviction, that uh, these people don't have to worry about the pandemic anymore uh, while we're sitting there worrying about the pandemic. So, James, this was very much the, the thrust of, of your piece, uh, and I, I don't know. I don't think... Well, there are a lot of reasons why they would do something like that, right? Sure. There are a lot of explanations. You know, I should I should say up front, I don't envy TV writers <laughs> over the past couple of years. You know, the, the pandemic, as it has been in a lot of areas, has been a choice among bad choices. Uh if you're if you're making TV set in the present. And you know, some shows, and this makes sense for some shows, have gone with the stamp from the standpoint of, you know, we're just gonna ignore it. In the universe of the show, COVID never existed, it's in the future, whatever. Uh some have, you know, sort of leaned heavily into it, sometimes kind of awkwardly and bludgeoningly. You know, we've seen some sort of very special TV shows that are kind of all about the pandemic and characters interacting on Zoom. Uh, but, you know, lately I've been seeing more and more of these examples where there's this kind of unsettling and to me in a way more depressing approach of saying, okay, yes, the pandemic existed in the world of the show. It happened. It was totally a big deal. It affected life and everything. But yada, 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 it's it's over now. <laughs> you know, we don't really want to deal with it in the present. Uh, you know, good luck to the rest of you. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about it as we're gonna talk about it as if we're in the place that we were all hoping we would be in half a year or a year ago. You know, it's just the dissonance is that for the characters, that's true, but for you, you're still looking at CVS for rapid antigen tests. Right. So in the words of Seinfeld, they kind of yada yada COVID. COVID. I can't the, do that. They yada yada the pandemic. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, and, and there's some good reasons for this. You're going to watch Sex and the City or and, uh, and just like that. You know, you want to see everybody's faces. So you don't want to mask. And, and I think more than that. If you let the pandemic in, pretty soon you've got COVID and the city, right? You've got, I mean, there, it's hard to have the co- the pandemic as a side plot. It, it tends to sort of overwhelm everything. So even though uh, in the case of, of this reboot of Sex and the City, they were going to have, minimum spoiler, one of the major characters die in the first episode, although not of COVID, but maybe of a relic from the time of COVID. Yeah. <laughs> Directly from yeah. COVID, let's just say. Right. Yeah. But they, they didn't want to go that uh, so dark, right? I mean, if they if they let the pandemic be in full flower in Tribeca, you've got a very different series. Um, because the pandemic is so totalizing, you know, which is one thing that I was thinking about when I was writing this piece. It's not the first time that television has had to figure out how to or whether to involve Uh, you know, some big change in American life uh, that has kind of upended the world, right? Like, you know, my mind went to to Mm -hmm. 9-11, you know, but the thing is with, you know, 9-11 as huge and life changing an event as that was, it didn't necessarily need to going forward, you know, affect the reality of Mike and Molly or, you know, friends or whatever. And and then when it came to shows like, you know, 24, you know, terrorism, you could even use that as sort of a, you know, a plot driving device 
uh, and you know lend excitement to a lot of shows. Uh, the pandemic, uh, you know, of course, is 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 something that creeps into every area of our life. But as a result, you end up with this choice between where either you know TV, which you know it entertains us, but it's also you know it's kind of the medium that shows us how we live right now. Uh, is is kind of saying that actually the reality that you are living in, viewer, is so terrible <laughs> that we can't show it on TV. Uh, you know, or you end up with these sort of unsatisfying compromises. Now, I mean, like, but that's not to say it can't be done. You know, it, I think it would have, you know, been, uh, you know, intrusive on a show like and just like that. On the other hand, you you take a a, a show like um, uh, This Is Us on NBC, uh, which went very COVID heavy in its previous season. Until this season, it seems to have decided that it's kind of done with that. Right. It is sort of interesting. I mean, there's certain shows uh, you could sort of analogize bluntly and imprecisely between 24's relationship to 9-11 and Station 11's re- relationship to the pandemic. It was like, we already knew there was a pandemic. We, the, you know, we, we knew there was a pandemic before there was a pandemic. We don't have to even think about that. We, we're, we're pandemic driven just in, in the same way that 24 was kind of terrorism driven. But, yeah. but you'd think. And, and, and yeah, yeah, you know, it, it's, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because that was the thing, you know, 24, if, if you go back and remember, that was a show that was created and scheduled for fall 2001 before 9-11. Mm-hmm. And immediately after 9-11, a lot of people's reaction was, well, this show will never air. People you know, are not going to want to see this sort of subject matter now. And it was the one of the biggest or the biggest hits of that fall in the decade afterward. And, you know, with, with Station 11, uh, you know, nobody knows what you know, really credible viewership numbers are on, on streaming anymore. But that's a show that, that despite having this, uh, you know, these, these overtones with this really big bummer of a news event going on right now has generated a big following and, and a lot of talk. So, you know, again, like, I just, I, I think that, you know, these, the, you know, these themes, like it's something that, that, that can be done, but it is very tricky. Right. It doesn't have to be a buzzkill, but even though it's a buzzkill. So I have to admit, James, that I stopped watching Grey's Anatomy, I think sometime around 1962, uh, but I know it's still on the air (laughs) and it's still going to be on the air when civilization is otherwise extinguished. And then Shakespeare troops will roam the countryside performing scenes from Grey's Anatomy uh, to the surviving remnants of humankind. I understand. I understand its relationship to human history, I think. Uh, But I would expect a hospital based show. that I'm not watching to do a pretty good job with the pandemic. So, so what happened there? Well, and the thing is it, 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 it did. I mean, you know, I don't know what I would say qualifies as, you know, a, a good job. I'm not a medical professional. And, you know, honestly, like, I don't think that even medical shows on TV should exist to be sort of, you know, like public health education film strips, but they, they decided that uh, the season before this one uh, to their credit, you know, this is a medical show. It's, it's a medical show set in the pre- present. It's ridiculous if we don't address COVID. Um, and they did, you know, characters treated people with COVID. They dealt with the, the uh, problems that hospitals encountered being equipped for COVID. Characters got COVID. Um, and, you know, the show stayed on the air and stayed successful. I mean, after all, you know, we talk about all the very real logistical problems of 
you know, bringing the pandemic into a show on television. But for years, medical shows have managed to have characters wear masks in operating shows and yet talk about their lives and emote and generate drama. Um, and it worked. Um, and it, for for whatever reason, you know, maybe just, you know, exhaustion like we all have and the ability to move on this season uh Grey's Anatomy has backed off that and it now begins with a disclaimer saying that it is now sent in I think the term is like a post-pandemic future that represents a post-pandemic reality that represents our hopes for the future um so they 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 they, I guess, yada yada the pandemic in a bit more of a serious way. So I would argue, although I think those of us who work in journalism have some problems with this show, but I would I would argue that the morning show, the Apple Plus uh, series, the morning show with Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon, you know, I think that they made a halfway decent attempt in their second season to tackle the pandemic, to show a newsroom getting overwhelmed by the pandemic, to show something that happened in a lot of newsrooms where there was like one person initially on, initially in the newsroom. I think it's a character named Don Henderson or something like that in there who, who's going, oh, no, this is going to be way bigger than you think it is. We got to get ready. And everybody else is thinking about other stuff. Um, but I, I would argue that they, you know, by the end of this, Jennifer Aniston's character, Alex, has contracted COVID. Um, you know, and they're do she's doing shows from her apartment with with Chip Black there. I I, I don't know. I th- I thought they did a reasonably good job. What was your take? I mean, that is a show that I I have had my issues with too <laughs> in some ways, but I actually thought that that was a pretty creative way of dealing with that. You know, again, I think that you know they to their credit took the the point of view that. This is a show about news, you know, that is that that just left off on the eve of the pandemic. And how are we not going to deal with the biggest story of all time? And, and so what what they did, and, and I think it actually ended up being more rewarding, was that rather than sort of drop you in the middle of social distancing and the pandemic, they, they showed the process of an unfolding story and how, you know, people take it seriously or or don't take it seriously and it kind of, you know, creeps up on the world gradually and then uh, and then all at once, uh, you know, and I I actually think whatever whatever other issues I had with some of the, you know, the sort of soapy twists of the season, um, you know, I think that that is actually a really interesting approach to the subject. Well, the showrunners, too, have said something that I think is very smart, which is, they didn't quite put it this way, but in a way what they needed to do with Jennifer Aniston's character, because she's so... Uh, angry and and he- heavily armored emotionally. They wanted to see her show her more raw and vulnerable, and so the pandemic gave them kind of an easy way to do that, right? So I mean, uh, if you think about it that way, you start doing the the judo. You start taking the weakness and turning it into uh, a strength. And and I thought in terms of plot and character development, they they seized an opportunity that was sitting there waiting for them, uh, and that helped. I do want to ask you: you would think of all people. The person who would have the least to fear by turning in a dark and cranky direction would be Larry David. Uh, so uh, 
we're going to hear a little clip from uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, uh, this is the current season. This is C3, Cat, uh, And you're going to hear um, – well, I guess I have to give you a little bit of backstory. I believe what's happening here is that Albert Brooks uh, has planned to stage his own funeral so that he can sort of see what that's like, which is a very Albert Brooks thing to do. And John Hamm is going to be the eulogist. Uh, and, and once again, I think the implication here is the pandemic's kind of over. So let's hear how that sounds. I wish I had one more chance just to tell him how much Lost in America resonated with me. Oh my God. He's a COVID hoarder. Albert Brooks is a COVID hoarder. He's a COVID hoarder. Albert's a COVID hoarder. Are you kidding me? What are you doing in the closet? What's going on here? Look at all that toilet paper. And Purell. First responders could have used all of that stuff. Why are people in that closet? Wait a minute. Are you really a COVID one? Hey, hey. This is unacceptable. What? What's going on here? What is wrong with you? You're sitting over there with a closet full of toilet paper? Jesus Christ. Unbelievable. Shonda. I just moved in here. This used to be a CVS. You know what? I hope you really die. John, this was beautiful. Come back. Come on, Jeff. We're out of here. This is a mistake. You disgust me. Shame on you, Albert Brooks. <laughs> when Susie Essman is saying shame on you, you know you've you've made a pretty grievous harm. So, um, so yeah, I mean, once again, James, the premise here is first responders could have used this. They don't necessarily need this stuff right now. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, number one, just... <laughs> It's still a hilarious scene, even just listening to the the audio of it, you know, and yeah, it, it also would have hit differently if you were actually watching it when the pandemic was pretty much a thing of the past, which, you know, when the season was in production, it was in production basically from, you know, I think like late fall 2020, something like that through May of 2021, it seemed like it was going to be right. Like in a lot of these cases, what you're seeing is sort of a time capsule of our attitudes in the sort of heady early vaccine era where we're like, you know, okay, by the time this airs, you know, this is this is where we're going to be. We're going to be kind of, you know, kind of, kind of done with this stuff. Uh, you know, so, so there's that, you know, one aspect of it there, but it's also, as, as I think you alluded to, it's, you know, obviously who am I to tell Larry David how to do comedy, <laughs> but it does make me imagine of what you could have had if, you know, he decided, you know, what the heck, like, let's do a COVID season because what, among other things, you know, a, a very serious global health story and event, you know, what has COVID been but conflicts among individual people over bad behavior and, you know, social mores and manners, which is totally what Curb Your Enthusiasm is about. You know, you can't tell me that fictional character Larry David would not have very, very strong feelings about other people's behavior uh, around, you know, masking or, or distancing or, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, and, and I, I, you know, honestly, like, you know, people talk about, I, you know, I want to watch TV to, you know, escape. I think that, you know, one form of escape can be like getting you to laugh about something bad that you're experiencing. Uh, and, you know, I, 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 I would, uh, I can understand not wanting to do that. I kind of would have loved to see it. 
Right. I mean, and I think this is a comedy format that you can ask that of. I don't think Bosom Buddies or something would have been necessarily yeah. – I've never actually seen an episode of Bosom Buddies. But I'm guessing that a lot of comedy shows, because there's a, an implicit you know, sunniness to them, uh, wouldn't be able to do this. Which, which one should? I should just remind people we're talking to James Ponowazek. Uh He is the chief TV critic for The New York Times. His most recent book, to the best of my knowledge, is Audience of One, Donald Trump, Television and the Fracturing of America. So I, I've got time for one more question. And I guess – This must be fascinating to you as a student of this medium because they're they're sort of playing around with the tipping point, right? The ones that have held back as much as possible or maybe even entirely. Uh, I mean, there's some that have sort of just prematurely predicted the end of it. Others have just never gotten into it at all. You know, and you have this thing that is just so pervasive, you know, and now just kind of infects, you should pardon the expression, our, our whole consciousness at a pretty granular level. You know, it's an interesting question, like how long can anybody hold out before they have to acknowledge it in this fictive context? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, would that we all knew exactly how the pandemic is going to play out. But one thing you hear about this is, well, you know, maybe you don't want if you're making a TV show to, you know, make something that's, you know, going to be dated in another, you know, few months when we're done with this. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, like, you know, I hope we're done with this at some point, but I don't think anybody, you know, can, you know, we were we were all saying that a year ago. Um, you know, to the point that, you know, some things could eventually become, you know, not a not an aberration that we move away from, but a, a return to a new normal. Like, do you just end up with, with a place where TV is sort of this alternate reality that just doesn't show a big part of how people live or where we have, you know, this kind of huge hole in our visual record of what was this huge all-encompassing uh you know event for 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 the world for at least a few years uh so yeah i think i think you know if if you've held out i can understand the reasons for it and there are a lot of logistical problems on the other hand to me that kind of argues in a way for you know why not just why not just if you're a show that that is basically set in reality more or less a fictionalized reality why not just you know show the you know show the reality that exists at the time that you're making the show, right. and yeah, maybe it's going to seem outdated to have a character putting on a mask if somebody watches it in a few years. But you know, Mike Brady's hair looks outdated in an episode of The Brady Bunch because it looks like the hair of a guy in the early 1970s. Uh, you know, this just TV is a snapshot of 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 a moment in time. And I'm not saying that like everybody should be trying to depict this because it doesn't make sense for every show. Um, I'm just a little surprised that more haven't kind of grabbed at, you know, the, the opportunity. Right. Well, we have to stop there. Uh, James Ponowazic has been very generous with his time today. Uh, you've been very generous to listen to this show, too. I hope it was worth it. I mean, I think it was. Uh, so uh, thanks for doing that. And we'll be talking to you again tomorrow. Nothing on. Nothing on. 